Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Basically, we're now in the middle of the chapter 7. And what he's trying to understand is a concept that's mentioned in the prophet. And we actually recite it every morning in the prayer. We say, it says in the prophet, Ani Hashem that I, Hashem, I have not changed. The creation has not changed Hashem, has not affected Hashem. Hashem remains unchanged, unaffected. We say it every day in prayer. Before the davening, we say Shema Yisrael, and then we um, recite a paragraph that begins with Atahu Ad You are before the world was created, Atahu, and you are the same after the world was created. You were the same before the world was created, and you are the same since the world has been created. He could have easily said, You are Atahu Ad but he repeats again, Atahu, you are before the world was created, and you are after the world, he repeats again, you are after the world was created, meaning that you are the same, just like you were alone before creation. All there was was a God, there was no one else. So too, now after creation, you are alone. There is no one else, only you. And that's really the meaning, the interpretation of Shema Yisrael. This is the paragraph, if you look, that comes right after Shema Yisrael. If you look, look, at, the, look at the previous page, it comes right after Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, Hashem is one. So what, does, what do we mean when we say Hashem Echad, Hashem is one? Do we mean there's only one God and not two gods? Do we mean that God is one, absolutely one? No. So in, this, in the following paragraph, he explains that what we mean is that Hashem is one, there's only one reality. There's nothing else but Hashem. And that's what we mean. Just like you were alone before you created the world, so even after you created the world, you're alone. How is that? Because all there is is you. This is expressed elsewhere in the Torah. The Torah says, and this is the verse that he begins in the beginning of this whole section of the Tanya. But yet, Moshe tells the Jewish people, You should know, You should take to your heart, Ki Hashem hu alikim, Hashem is alikim, Ein oid milvadeh. There's no one else but Him. Ein oid. There's no one else but Him. Meaning, that there's no other reality but God. Not only there's no other God, because for that He wouldn't have to tell you, You should know, You should take to heart, that is, Hashem is in heaven above and Hashem is on earth below. There's no one else. I mean, why would you have to emphasize? I mean, would we think that there may be another God hiding under the water? That after he tells us there's no God in heaven, there's no other God in heaven, there's no other God on earth. In addition, there's no one else. I mean, where else is there other God? But obviously, he means something much more profound, much deeper. What he's telling us is, Ein Eid, literally, is no one else but God. And therefore, this is something that you have to take to heart. You have to think about very deeply. You have to take to heart. Because it's counterintuitive. And every single day you have to think about it again. And again. And again. Because it makes no sense. What do you mean there's no one else but God? I mean, we're here. There's a world. Everything is God. The table, the chair. 
No. On the other hand, you can't say everything is God. If you bow down to the table, it's called idolatry. It's called pantheism. If you worship the earth, that's pantheism. If you worship nature, that's pantheism. Ah, so on one hand, we're saying that God is everything and everything is God and that God permeates all of reality and yet at the same time, there is a world. God creates a world that's separate from it. So this is enough to drive your mind crazy because what's going on here? Sure, <laughs> What is going on here? This is enough to engage your mind, fully occupy and engage your mind. I mean, do we exist or don't we exist? Is the world real or is the world an illusion? The, the world is not an illusion. How do we know the world is not an illusion? If the world were an illusion, we would have no problem. Then it makes sense. The world is one big illusion. We think we're seeing the world, but really the world is not what it appears to be. The world is God. Everything is God. So we can, we can relate to that. You know, people live lives... Their whole life could be an illusion. So we could relate to the idea of maybe it's like a, we're wearing blinders in our eyes and we don't see, and therefore what we see is not reality. All right? We see a table. But is a table really a table? What is a table? A table is chemicals. Is it, is it really chemicals? No, it's atoms. It's energy, pure energy. The table appeals stiff, rigid, external, materialistic, but is that true? No, matter is energy. It's alive, it's vibrant, it's pulsating, it's, it's, it's a process. So obviously what we see, the eye sees, is very, is very deceptive, is very delusional. What we see is not reality. So maybe God sees a different reality. So if we were to say that the world is an illusion, then it's easy to understand. The world is an illusion. We're an illusion, the world is an illusion. And therefore, all there is is God. But you can't say that. Why not? Maybe even be logical to say that we're all delusional. It's a fantasy, make-believe world. <laughs> I'm laughing. Bob Dylan has a line. He says, um, I'll let you be in my dream if you'll let me be in yours. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do we know the world is not a delusion? We have one proof. One proof only. Because the Torah says, Bereshis, Baralukim, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. The Torah says that there's a world. And we have Torah and mitzvot. We know Torah and mitzvot are for real. It's not an illusion. God gave us Torah and mitzvot. So even from God's point of view, the mitzvah accomplishes something. The whole idea of a mitzvah is that a Jew takes a physical object, a mundane, materialistic object, you take leather hide of an animal and you write a Torah scroll with it. And you write a, a mezuzah. And you ch change. You take a physical object, which before you do the mitzvah with it, you can take it into a bathroom, you can take it into unholy places. Once you do a mitzvah with it, the object itself becomes holy. The scroll becomes holy. And you have to treat it with respect. You're not allowed to throw it on the ground. You can't take it into a bathroom. You can't, you can't be immodest in front of it. So something very real happens. And it's not just from our perspective, from God's point of view. God gave us Torah mitzvah that we should accomplish something. Before the Torah says that the object is not holy, once you do a, a Jew does a mitzvah with it, the object becomes holy, a holy, sacred object. So you can't say that the world is, is an illusion. The world is very real. God created the world. 
And at the same time we say that nothing changed. God was alone before he created the world. And he's alone after he created the world. There's nothing else but God. There's no other reality but God. So which is it? Do we exist? Don't we exist? Is it real? Is it not real? And this question, this question, this whole portion of the Tanya, this second part, segment of the Tanya, which began with the introduction and now we're into the middle of the seventh chapter, discusses this idea and trying to understand it. It's one thing that a Jew has faith. We have faith. Whether we understand it, we don't understand it, we have faith that there is no other reality but God. We have faith that God's essence permeates all of reality. God is present right before us. There's no hiding, there's no screening, there's no concealment. God is not elsewhere. There's no elsewhere. There's nowhere empty of God. There's no space empty of God. God is everywhere. The very essence of God. God permeates all of reality. And at the same time, we say that there is a world and there's a reality. So the Alter Rebbe is trying to explain it in Chabad. Chabad is an acronym for Chachma Binadas, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. That we should be able to get a handle on it, try to get a grasp, an understanding of this concept. And he starts out by explaining that that creation, creation is the ultimate ultimate miracle. Because creation something from nothing, something that doesn't exist, has no reason to exist, has no prior existence. And its, its existence is, is an astonishing miracle. And therefore it takes a tremendous, it takes an energy, a creative force that must constantly force our being into existence. Otherwise, we would revert back to our natural state, which is absolute nothingness. And since every, and he goes on to explain that every object in the world has like a soul. Even a stone has like a soul, a divine energy that's like a soul to the stone that's creating it, that's sustaining it, and constantly bringing it into existence. It's a dynamic, ongoing process that we don't see. All we see is the end result. We see the tip of the iceberg. We see the stone. But we don't see what's really going on. What's really going on is that there's an energy that's transforming itself into the stone. Matter is, uh, is energy. It's just another form of energy. Energy transforming into, into matter. We don't see that. For thousands of years, we didn't even know it. But that's the truth. That's the reality. As the modern physicist will tell you, the table is the table. The table, what, you, what you're not seeing is, what you're not seeing is that inner dynamic process where energy, where the atoms at this very moment are transforming itself into this table that we see, this rigid physical table. As a matter of fact, 99.9%.9.9% is all empty space. It's just the atoms are, 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 are whirling with such speed and that it creates a sense of solidity and rigidity and it creates the world, the visible world as we see it. But what we see is just the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg. We don't really see what's really going on. So every physical object in the world has a Hebrew name. A Hebrew name, the Hebrew name, the Hebrew letters are the channels of the divine energy. 
that are specifically customized for each item. That's why each item has its own name. That's why every, every person has their own name. A name, everything is in the Hebrew name. The Hebrew name is not just a random name like in English or French or any other language. The Hebrew name is a holy language. God created the world with the Hebrew language. The Hebrew language preceded the object because that's the channel of the divine energy to create, to bring, and to sustain this object into existence. If God would stop speaking the Hebrew words, the world would cease to exist. And therefore, since we can understand, we can logically understand that the divine creative energy must constantly, this process, creation, is a dynamic process, an ongoing process. Not that God created the world once, 5,765 years ago, but that creation is ongoing. Therefore, we can understand the connection between the created and the creator. It's a very, inti- it's a very intimate connection because... Since the created has no reality on its own, it would cease to exist in the blink of an eye if the creator would stop creating it. Therefore, it's so connected to the creator. It has no independent reality other than the creator. So it's totally nullified to the creator. It's nothing to the creator. Because since it's totally dependent on the creator, so it is, it, it's nothing. And it's totally unified with the Creator. Because the Creator could turn it on and turn it off in a second. We're here because the Creator wants us to be here. The moment God, doesn't, the moment God stops willing us into existence, we s- cease to exist. We revert back to absolute nothingness. So even when we do exist, we are just really... It was just... We're just an expression of the Creator. And he uses the analogy of light. Light has no reality on its own. Light is totally dependent on the, on the orb, on the sun. The moment you don't see the sun, you don't see the light. So since the light has no independent reality, what is the light? The light is nothing other than a reflection of the sun. The light is not an independent reality. Or everything the light has, it has from the sun. It has nothing on its own. Light can't walk away from the sun. It has nothing on its own. So the created really has nothing of its own. Everything that we have comes from God. And we are sustained by God, by the divine creative energy. So therefore we, in a sense, we're really nothing. We have no Inherent reality. We have no independent reality. So what are we? Whatever we have, we have from God. We have nothing other than everything we have, our content, our meaning, our definition, our being, our existence. Everything we have comes from, comes from the Creator. So therefore we are totally nullified within the Creator and we're totally one with the Creator. And he brings the analogy of light within the sun. If the sun is able to emanate light, emit light, surely the sun has light. You can't give what you don't have. So the light within the sun, what is that light all about? Is there any light in the sun? In the sun you won't find any light, but it's there. What does that mean? It's there in the sense that the sun has the ability to give off light. If the sun emits light, obviously the sun has the ability to give off light. 
The reason why you can't find the light because the light doesn't sense itself. All the light senses is the sun's ability to give off light. That, that's all that really exists. All that's there is the sun's ability to give off light. That's all, that's all, that's all there is. All there is is the sun. The sun itself and the sun's ability to give off light. It's, just, it's all about the sun. The, the light doesn't exist because it's not about the light. The light is just an expression of the sun. It's an expression of the sun's ability to give off light. And the same is with creation. Since we are totally dependent on God for our very being, our very existence, and everything we have, our content, our definition, everything we have is our soul, is the energy, is the divine energy, the Hebrew letter is the divine creative energy. That's all we are, that's all we have, we have nothing else. So we are like the light of the sun within the sun, because what are we all about, really? We are an expression of God's ability to create. It's an, it's an expression of God. God has an ability to express Himself. He has ability to express Himself by emitting a light, so to speak, that reflects Himself. And God has ability to express Himself by creating something from nothing. That's also ability of God. It's a way of self-expression. God expresses Himself. So what are we really? All we are is an expression of God's infinite, divine, infinite ability to create something from nothing. Something that doesn't exist in its source. Something that has no precedent. Something that shouldn't be here. Something that's it's not logical, it's not rational, there's no cause, there's no reason, no rhyme, no reason. Suddenly we appear. Only God has the power to create something from that. So what are we all about? We are just an expression of God's ability to create something from that. So therefore, if we were to see that truth and realize that truth, we would see ourselves the way God sees us. How does God see us? God sees us as just, it's just an expression of himself. It's an expression of his ability to create something from nothing. That's what God sees in the world. Not that the world is an illusion. God has the ability to create something from nothing. And he does, he does create this cup of water. It's genuine. It's not an illusion. This cup of water is real. You make a blessing. And, and if you do a mitzvah with this cup of water, on Sukkot you pour the water, it becomes a holy. But... What does God see in the water? What does God see in the world? What God sees is the same thing the sun sees. The sun doesn't see the light. What does the sun see? The sun sees the ability to, to, to reflect itself. That's all. So that's all about the sun. There's nothing else but the sun. It's the sun's ability to express. So what does God see in the water? And what does God see in all of creation? God sees himself. His ability to create something from nothing. If we were to see what God sees, we wouldn't notice the water. Not that the water is an illusion, but it's not, water is not about water. What's water? What's the real story of the water? The real story of the water is shahakol that everything is created by, with the word of God through his divine creative energy, which is mind-boggling because only God has the power to. The miracle of the splitting of the sea and all the miracles is nothing in comparison to the miracle of the fact that there is a cup of water. To change water from flowing to standing is nothing in comparison to changing not, not being non-existence into existence. The shift, the transition from non-existence, non-being into being, non-existence into existence is much more dramatic than the tra- transformation from water flowing or water standing erect during the splitting of the sea. So the greatest miracle of all is what we call nature. That's the greatest miracle of all. But we dismiss and we call and label as nature. 
is really nothing short of an astonishing miracle, more astonishing than any other miracle imaginable, conceivable. The existence itself is the greatest miracle. That this table exists is a miracle. That we exist is a miracle. Creation is the most dynamic, vibrant miracle. It's the ultimate expression of only God's ability. Only God has the ability to create something from nothing. Because God himself has no rhyme, no reason. God himself is the, is the essence. Just is. And therefore, God has the ability to create something from nothing. Which really has no rhyme and no reason and no logic. And it just appears like suddenly out of nowhere. Just here. I am. I'm here. So this is... So what should we... If we removed our blinders, if we were able to see God's perspective, what would we see? We would see, we wouldn't notice the physical material world. Not that it's not there. But that's not what you notice. What you would notice is what's really going on. The inner story. It's not about the cup of water. It's about God's ability to create something from that. Just like the, the light of the sun, the light doesn't sense itself, because all the light senses, not the light is there, but the light doesn't sense itself. The light is totally nullified and unified with the sun. All the light senses is the sun. What is the light? Nothing than an expression of the sun. And it's all the light senses. Another analogy that Alter Rebbe uses elsewhere in Tanya is like the letters, words, the letters and words that we use in our lives. Where do these letters come from? They don't come out of thin air. The letters that you use to communicate, the letters that you use to think, these letters come from within you. Yet, where were these letters exactly while they were within you? You didn't even sense that you had letters. When, before you have words to communicate in, you have the raw experience or the raw concept or the raw emotion. You have no words to, to describe it, to express it. All you have is the raw experience. And then you sit down and you start figuring out and thinking the words to communicate this experience, this emotion, this concept to others or to yourself, thought, speech. Where, where do these words and letters come from? They don't come from thin air. They come from within you. But while they're within you, it didn't exist. They were there, but it's as if it wasn't there. Not that it's an illusion. The letters are there. The letters are there all along. But they were hidden. Not hidden they were hidden as if it didn't exist. Because all that you sensed were the experience. That, that's all there is, is the experience. And the emotion, and the concept, and the subconscious level. That's all that exists. There are no words, there are no letters. The letters are all there, but it doesn't sense its own existence. Totally egoless. There's no sense of self. There's no, there's no separation. There's no disconnect. It's totally nullified within the soul, totally unified within the soul. And, and then we speak, and the letters emerge, and the words emerge. So the letters were there, but now they emerge. So God's point of view, God's point of view are like the words and the letters while they're still within the soul. They're there, but they're not there. The soul itself doesn't even feel, sense its, its existence. It's there. But it doesn't sense letters. All it senses is the soul itself. So that's what we mean when something is there, but it's not there. It has no sense of separation. It has no sense. It's totally nullified and unified with the source, like the light of the sun within the sun. A, a more physical example that the, the Kabbalists use, like the, 
We know everything is made up of four basic elements, including water. Water also has earth in it. Yet you'll strain the water and strain it a few times until you get pure water. Take that pure water that you buy in the store, that pure, that you pay double, triple, quadruple for, and cook the water. You know what you're going to find at the bottom of your pot? Sediment. Now where exactly was that sediment? Pure water. Purified water. Filtered water. It's there. But it's not there. I can't find it. It can't even find itself. But when you cook it, it emerges. It's there. The letters are in the soul. The, letter, the soul is filled with letters. But you can't find the soul. You can't find it. Because it's, it's not what it's about. All, these, all the letter sense of the soul itself. There's nothing else but the soul. All the light senses is the orb, the sun itself. There's nothing else but the sun. Not that it's not there, it's an illusion. It's there, but it's, it's, it doesn't mean anything. Here's another analogy. Imagine you're, you're, you're reading Chinese. You notice every letter, you notice every word, and you notice every shape. Why? Because you don't understand the word. Imagine if you learn how to read Chinese. You don't even notice the letters. <laughs> you're not reading the letters. The letters, it's the content of the letters. So you're reading, you read in a language you understand, you don't even notice the letters. It's not the letters, it's the content. You're not even paying attention. It's there, but I'm not paying attention. That's not what it's about. So it's, it's a different perspective. It's not that it's not there, but it's, it's not, that's not what it's about. It's not about the letters and the shapes, and this is about the meaning, and that's all you see. So you're looking at the letters, you're not looking at the letters. What are you seeing? You're seeing what's beyond the letters. You're seeing what it's really all about. So the soul that's filled with letters, there's no letters. You don't sense it. It's not, what it's, not the letters. It's the pure, raw experience. The light senses the sun. All there is is the sun's ability to give off light. That's all there is, is the sun. There's nothing else. So God's perspective is, God looks at the world. What does God see? God sees himself. All there is is God. And God's ability to create. So we look at the world. If we were to remove our blinders, we would also see. We would also have the same perspective. We would also see, we wouldn't notice the physical world, the material world. We would notice the divine energy, the miracle, the astonishing miracle. We would see the process of creation, how each and every moment, this infinite process, how each and every moment energy is transforming into matter, the spiritual is transforming into the material. This act of creation, this astonishing act of creation, which doesn't cease to be astonishing. Every single moment, this act of creation is recreated. We have a front row seat at creation. Imagine you had a front row seat at creation. Each and every moment we have a front row seat at creation. This divine miracle that happens over and over and over again. And it must happen over and over again because the moment it ceases, it's not something you take for granted. The moment it ceases, we cease to exist as if we never existed. We revert back to absolute nothingness. If Hashem stops creating the world, we revert back to absolute nothingness as if we never existed. Not that we existed 5,765 years. As if we never existed. Because that is our absolute state of being. Absolute nothingness. It's an astonishing miracle. Every moment that goes by that we're here is nothing short of a miracle. Every moment that goes by in the sun, every day and the sun rises, is nothing short of a miracle. But the laws of nature work. Everything is a miracle. So if we were to see the truth, we would look at that, see that, that perspective, 
all we would sense would be godliness. So we would be totally nullified before God. There would be no ego. We would be egoless. There would be no sense of I. No sense of separation. And we would be totally unified with God. God is everything and everything, everything is God. But we don't sense that. And therefore, the, we sense ourselves to be quite independent. We are outside of the sun. Not only like the light of the sun that's outside of the sun, that's a separate entity from the sun. You have the orb and then you have the light. Because the light of the sun, outside of the sun, is at least dependent on the sun. It's an entity that's entirely dependent on the sun and points to the sun. You can't see the light without seeing the sun. So when you look, you see the light, you automatically see the sun. We, however, we don't point to God. When you look at a tree, you don't see God. You look at a human being, you don't see God. Not overtly. Not instinctively. It doesn't point its finger. Matter of fact, you see an independent being. You see a self-sufficient being. You see a being that's, that whose most powerful drive is self-preservation, ego, I, preserving the I. You see a separate being, independent being, a disconnected being. So what we are seeing is actually a nice little distortion. We are seeing, we're getting actually a very corrupted view of reality. That's why the Zohar calls this world also the, a false world. Because this illusion that we are separate, independent, disconnected, self-sufficient, rugged individual on our own is quite deceptive. The truth is that we are nothing more than a, other than a metaphor for godliness. Everything that happens in our life, everything in this world is really a metaphor for godliness. It's a parable. This whole world is one big parable. Whether it's business, or whether it's, it's any profession, or the arts, or any, any area in life, everything in life is really just a parable. From the creativity of the artists, we can get some glimpse of God's creativity, Everything from selling insurance, everything in the world has a parable. It's really a parable, has a lesson. It's really pointing its finger and connecting us and helping us understand some godly truth and some godly concept. There is nothing else. There is nothing else but godliness. So everything in this world is really a stepping stone. It really helps us understand whether it's a stone. Everything in the world really is a metaphor for helping us, guiding us, for helping us understand and appreciate godliness. But you don't see that metaphor. You, when you don't see the world as a metaphor, you see the world as an independent reality, a place where you just live and have fun and, and a place which is an end in itself. That is the lie. That's where the lie begins. That is where the corruption. That's what we call in the Zohar evil, distortion, kalipa, shell, where you distort. You don't see the inside. You don't see the inner story. You don't see the genuine story. You see the world as an independent reality. And it could be very engaging. It could be a nice illusion, a very pleasant illusion. In this illusion, you could be a senator, you could be a billionaire, you could be a, you could be a celebrity. You, could, you know, it could be a very engaging illusion. 
but it's a delusion nevertheless. Because when you forget that every, this world is really a metaphor for godliness, and everything in the world is permeated with godliness. God is everything, and everything is God, and there's no separation. The world is genuinely nullified before God, because God can turn it on and turn it off in one second, and we revert back to absolute nothingness. So we are nothing but God. We are nothing other than the godly, divine, creative energy that's constantly and continuously creating us. So godliness permeates our very being, our very existence, every aspect of our being. Divine energy is our soul that animates and sustains us. So our very content is really nothing other than godliness. And we are able to find godliness in every aspect of our being, in our content, in our daily lives, where every part of our life becomes a, a, a metaphor helping us get closer and helping us connect, helping us understand so, based on this explanation, Alter Rebbe says we can understand when we say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. And that's why we say it twice a day. Because it's counterintuitive to really understand and to say, Shema Yisrael, listen, pay close attention. God is one, there's no other reality but God. Because all of creation is really nothing other than an expression of God's creative ability. So really all there is is really is really God. There's nothing else. And that's why we say God didn't change. What do you mean God didn't change? You were alone before you created the world. You were alone after you created the world. How can you say that? Before creation all there was was God. Now there's God and there's us. It's a little crowded. What do you mean you're alone before and you're alone after? The same way you're equally alone. What do you mean? Before God created us, now He created us. Because what is creation? Creation is just, it's God's self-expression. That's all creation is. It's God's ability to create something from nothing. What are we? We are God's expression. That's all we are. There's nothing else. The creation doesn't affect God. It doesn't grip God or grab Him or, or engage Him or change him or affect him. It doesn't affect him in any way. Before God, and now God. Before God was alone, now he's alone. Nothing changed. And he used the analogy, that's where the Torah gives us the analogy, that God created the world with ten words. When we speak ten words, how does that affect your life? Does that affect you? Does that change you? Was anything added to your life? Before you were alone without ten words, and now you spoke ten words, now there's you, plus you having spoken these ten words. No, it doesn't work that way. What are ten words? What are ten words? How many words do you speak throughout your life? Who can count? If you lived another 50 years, you can, you can speak another, another infinite amount of words. Right? If every word that you speak, how many words do you think? We think four to five words for every word that we speak. We think so much quicker. So for, for the amount of words that you speak throughout your lifetime, and you can't stop thinking. You can stop speaking, but you can't stop thinking. How many words do you think in your lifetime? And the only reason you stop thinking is because after 120 years, if you lived another 100 years, you would continue to think. So what are 10 words in comparison to the infinite amount of words that you speak throughout your lifetime, or the infinite amount of words that you think throughout your lifetime? 
and go back a step. What are ten words in comparison to the thoughts, to the emotion? That's the source of the words. You don't love in French or in English or in Hebrew. Or... It's, a, it's a pure emotion beyond words. All the words in the world cannot adequately describe a genuine feeling, a genuine experience. Words don't mean anything. Words don't add anything. Words don't mean anything. You can't put it into words, a raw emotion, a raw experience. Words, words pale. Words, words are so impoverished. Words, words so superficial. Words don't capture the experience or the raw emotion. Or the... And surely if you go back, beyond the emotion, the raw concept, 2 plus 2 is 4, defies words. 2 plus 2 is 4 is in Russian or in English, in any language. Not only it transcends language, a raw concept, raw understanding, raw logic defies culture. That's why during the height of the Cold War, the Russian communist scientist had a perfect rapport with his capitalistic uh, counterpart. Because raw science, raw logic, raw comprehension defies culture, politics, Capitalism, communism, socialism. You know, what the, this is, we're talking about raw brain power, raw comp- comprehension. It's beyond words. Words don't mean anything. And that's only the conscious level of a person. You go deeper. Subconscious, subconscious totally defies words. There are no words that can th- describe a subconscious feeling experience. Totally defies words altogether. And then you have the essence of the person. The person who's speaking the words. So the person who's speaking the words, behind the words is the power to speak. Behind the power to speak is the power to think. Behind the power to think is the power of emotion. The, behind, the heart, the behind the power of emotion is the power of raw intellect. Behind the power of raw intellect is the subconscious. And the, then behind that is the essence of the person. So what are ten words? So this person spoke ten words. Did this person add anything to himself? Did, did it mean anything? Not that he didn't speak the ten words. He spoke the ten words. But what does it mean? It means absolutely nothing. Nothing changed. The person remains unaffected. His power of speech remains unaffected. Because it's like a drop in the ocean compared to the ocean. In comparison to the amount of words he's speaking in your life, you can speak infinite words. Ten words, I did speak, I didn't speak. It makes absolutely no difference. It doesn't matter whatsoever if I did speak those ten words, I didn't speak those ten words. It doesn't affect me. It doesn't add. It, it's, it's like water off my back. It means nothing. Doesn't add anything to me. If I had a new emotion that would add something to me, but words, I spoke ten words, ten words are external, superficial to me. It doesn't mean anything. That's why word, words don't exhaust you. You can speak and speak and speak and speak. You may lose your voice, but the words don't exhaust you because words are superficial. That's why you have an infinite amount of words. Why is it a person could speak infinite amount of words? You're finite, you're limited. How is it you have infinite, infinite capacity to speak infinite amount of words? Because it's, it's water off your back. It means nothing to you. It doesn't add anything. It doesn't take away. It's totally external superficial. To you. So that's in comparison even to your power of speech, let alone to your power of thought and, or to your emotions, to your intellect, to your subconscious, to your essence. So what are ten words? Ten words mean nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's a non-event. No one's going to stop the presses and call, call a New York Times reporter. This person spoke ten words. Call them a press conference. A great event happened. We should mark it in history. Historical event. This person spoke ten words. It's a meaningless event. Nothing happened. The person remains unaffected. The person remains unchanged. It's absolutely nothing. It means nothing. 
less than a drop in the ocean in comparison to the ocean. It means nothing. The light of the sun. What does the light add to the sun? I think it makes a difference to the sun if there is light. There is no light. If it's a cloudy day, there is no light. There is no light. It doesn't add. It doesn't subtract. It doesn't affect the sun. The sun remains totally unaffected by the light. To think it affects the sun if the light is shining in, in, in a beautiful palace or if the light is shining in, in, in a garbage dump in some neighborhoods in New York, which we don't want to mention. It doesn't matter where the sun is, where the sun is shining. It makes, does it affect the sun? The sun is totally unaffected. It makes no difference. The sun is shining in a big room, a small room. It's, it means nothing to the sun. It means totally unaffected. The light means nothing to the sun. Not that it's an illusion. The light, the sun is giving off light, but it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't add anything, it doesn't subtract. It means absolutely nothing. A person speaks ten words. And that's the analogy the Torah is using. God created the world with ten words. God spoke ten words. So what difference does it make? Creation doesn't affect not that before you had God and now you have God and all the whole universe physical universe the spiritual universe the angels music art sublime high levels of consciousness mysticism spirituality in the beginning God creates heaven spirituality and earth materialism and you know God created it with ten words so imagine when we speak ten words what are ten words in comparison to us absolutely nothing meaningless doesn't add anything. It means nothing to us. We're not affected. We're not changed. It doesn't grab us. It doesn't exhaust us. It doesn't even begin to scratch the surface, let alone exhaust us. Multiply that infinite times when God speaks ten words. Yes, it's divine utterances. Divine energy. God creates the world. God has the ability to create. That's a divine ability. Only God has the ability to create. A unique ability. But that ability within God is the equivalent of us speaking ten words. It's not like God is occupied creating a world. God is busy creating a world. He's occupied. It engages him fully. It engages him totally. When a teacher teaches, it engages the teacher. A teacher has to prepare. A teacher has to think before. A teacher, when he's teaching, his mind, even before he's teaching, his mind is engaged in, in preparation for, this, for, the, for the class. It really taxes him. He can't think about other things. He has to really prepare very well. And while he's teaching, his mind is totally focused and concentrated on the teaching. He can't be thinking about ten other things. And after the teaching... He has to settle it in and, and all the questions he got and the feedback. It, it engages you and it changes you and it affects you. So much so the Talmud says that the teacher said, I learn a lot from my teachers. I learn even more from my colleagues. I learn the most from my students. The feedback, you learn more by teaching and communicating than you do learning on your own with your peers or being taught by your superiors. So it affects the teacher. The act of teaching engages you, grabs you, it affects you. It takes a piece out of you. It changes you. You are a changed person. You're changed before you taught, while you taught, and after you taught. It, it's something that affects you internally. But when you give off light, it doesn't affect you. It doesn't affect the sun. There is light. There is no light. It means nothing. When you speak ten words, it doesn't affect you. It doesn't engage you. It doesn't affect you. It doesn't grab you. It, doesn't, it means nothing. It's, a non, it's an absolutely meaningless event. It's a non-event. Nothing happened. What did the ten words add to me? Do I need ten words? The ten words, words don't add anything to you. Do you need words? You don't need words. If you were a Robinson Crusoe and you lived alone on an island, you wouldn't need words. Words are to communicate to others. You want to share with others what's going on in your mind, what's going on in your heart, what's going on in your thinking. So you share with others. But for yourself, what do words, why do I need words? Words don't add anything. 
I know what I feel, what I love, what I hate, what I'm attracted to, what I'm not attracted to, my understanding. Words are totally external, superficial. Words don't add anything to the raw emotion, raw experience, and words don't add anything to the raw intellect, raw comprehension. So words, words are meaningless. It doesn't add anything. So I spoke ten words. So it's like before I was alone, and now I spoke ten words. Like something was added to me. I changed. I'm, an, I'm affected by these ten words. No change. I'm not affected. Nothing happened. Now it's an illusion. I did speak ten words, but it means nothing. That's what the Torah means, Ani Hashem Nisi, when the Prophet says, I, God, has not changed. I have not changed. I'm not affected by creation. God spoke ten words, and He brought the whole world into existence. God has the ability to create something from nothing. It's a unique, divine, astonishing, only God in His infinite capacity has the capacity to create something from nothing. But it's the equivalent of God speaking ten words. It's the equivalent of us speaking ten words. Is God engaged, affected, changed, transformed by it? No. Nothing changed. It doesn't affect. It doesn't. And that's why that's what that's what we say, Shema Yisrael, that God is a, God is one. There's no other reality but God. Because really all there is, all there is is God. Because everything that exists is nothing other than the divine utterances, the words, the letters, the Hebrew letters of which God creates all, the divine energy. And that divine energy, in turn, is totally nullified and unified within God. So, all of existence is totally nullified and unified within God. And that's why he says God was alone before he created the world, and he's alone after he created the world. God sees himself within creation. So all there is is God. God was alone before and He's alone after. But on the other hand, God forbid to say the world is an illusion. Because God created the world. Why? Why did God create the world? Because God wanted to be a king. God wanted to have a relationship with us. In order to have a relationship with us, there has to be someone outside of yourself. You can't have a relationship with yourself. You can't marry yourself. You can't be a king over yourself. You can't even be a king over your own body. Because your body is inseparable from you. It's you. You can't be a king over your own children. You can't be a king over your own ministers. You can only be a king over subjects who are distant from you, who are separate from you, who are apart from you. So it's the name Admai, which is God's attribute of royalty, that brought, that, that brought about creation. Because since God wanted to be a king, and in order to be a king, in order to have a relationship, there has to be something, so to speak, outside of God. That attribute is responsible for bringing everything into existence. That's the attribute of royalty, that, that's the attribute that separates us from God, that hides God, that separates us, and creates that perspective that outsider's perspective, and that enables us to look at God as outsiders, as separate. We don't feel, we don't sense, we don't feel like God's body. If we were to feel like God's body, the body has no ego. When was the last time you felt your own body? Hopefully never. If you feel your body, it's the first sign of illness. What's the first sign of health? You're light. You don't even sense yourself. The body is not the body. What's the body? You see, when you see a hand, you see a hand, you see the soul. The, 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 the hand is just, is just conveying the soul. I don't see the flesh. I don't see the physical. What you see is the inside. 
The body is just the reflection of the soul. That's all the body is. The body conveys the soul, carries the soul, is totally nullified to the soul, is unified with the soul, totally egoless, unselfconscious. You don't sense your body. A healthy person is totally unselfconscious. You don't sense yourself. All there is is the soul. It's inseparable. And we, however, we are not that way. We are not like God's body. We sense ourselves. And we sense ourselves as separate from God. We're self-conscious. Even the angels are self-conscious. They're brilliant minds, brilliant intellects, brilliant minds, and comprehend God. But there's an I that's comprehending God. Comprehension, knowledge, by definition, is something that's outside. You know something outside of you. You're separate. You're conscious. That's our definition of knowledge. Which leads us to the next point that we're going to discuss, and we'll really get into it next week, that God's knowledge is different. The prophet said, my knowledge is not like your knowledge. Your knowledge is from a position of self-consciousness, from a position of separation, of being separate. And therefore you acquire knowledge. You learn something new, something you didn't know before. So there's a change. Knowledge affects you. Because you learn something new. Yesterday I did not know this piece of information. Now I know this piece of information. I'm a new person. I'm a transformed person. Because I know something I didn't know yesterday. I learned something new. So knowledge changes us. God's knowledge is different. God's knowledge doesn't change me. Because God's knowledge is not self-conscious. God's knowledge is not external. It's not disconnected. God and His knowledge and what's known are totally one and inseparable. It's totally unself-conscious. And the analogy is the knowledge like a person knows himself. You know yourself, you know yourself unselfconsciously. It's not a conscious knowledge. It's not an external knowledge. You know yourself because you are yourself. When you know something externally, it's like, I know something. When you know yourself, it's like, it's like knowledge knows me. It's, it's a whole different story. It's, we're not like I'm the outsider and we're detached and we're objective and I know something. There's no detachment, there's no objectivity. When you know yourself, you are the knowledge. You, the knowledge knows you. You're inseparable. It's unselfconscious. There's no separation. There's no, it's like a body to the soul. Our knowledge is not like a body to the soul. Our knowledge is separate. There's a separation. There's us, there's the body, there's the knowledge, and there's the knower, there's the knowledge, and there's the knowing. Three different parts, components, that all come together in knowledge. When you know something, you know through the tool which is the mind, you, who is separate from the mind, you know the knowing, whatever you learn. Three separate things, components that come together through knowledge. But it's, it's, a part, it's, a, it's three parts you can break up into three different parts. You can have one without the other. When you know yourself, there's no components. You can't separate yourself. It's unselfconscious. There's no separation. You can't have one without the other. You can't have knowledge without you. So it's, that's the type of knowledge that the prophet says, when God says, we know, we say God knows. God knows everything. Can I ask you a question? Yes. Uh, I heard something once that to, to know this pencil, you have to be the pencil. Uh, can you elaborate on that? You, you just have to be it. It's, it's, in other words, not to be separate from it. Which means you really can't know, <laughs> because you're not the pencil. <laughs> so you really can't know. Right. 
um, that's why biblical knowledge is called husband and wife is called biblical knowledge because when you you become inseparable, that's the ultimate ultimate knowledge. Um, but yes, our knowledge is very self-conscious, is very external, and um, you can divide it into components. But like you know yourself, it's an unself-conscious knowledge where you can't separate yourself from the knowledge, the knower, the known. Because you're the knower, you know yourself, and the knowledge is, is part of it, is you. So that's a different type of knowledge. You know yourself because you are yourself. It's like the knowledge knows you. Um, and there's no separation. The knowledge is like a body to the soul. There's no separation. It's very hard for us to relate to that because that's not, that's not usually the way we know things. Usually the way we know things, every day we grow richer in knowledge. We learn something new every day. We're hungering for knowledge. We get bored if we don't learn something new. The human being needs new information. We have to constantly learn and grow and, and, and take in and absorb new information. And we grow richer and we are rich by it and we learn new things. And so it's a constant and every, every, this, is, this is a lifelong, lifelong process. But our knowledge is very external. It's very superficial. But the type of knowledge that you're describing, we actually become one with it, inseparable from it. This is an unselfconscious knowledge. It's very rare for a person to know something from his, unself, from, his, from his subconscious. When something stirs from within you, very deep down inside of you, and it almost feels like a revelation from your subconscious, and then it's a knowledge It feels like almost a recognition. Like, like suddenly you know something, oh, I've always known this. It was there all along. It was right there. I always knew this. And something shifts inside of you and something stirs very deep inside of you. And it's something that comes from, from your subconscious. That's a very profound knowledge. That's, that's not a usual way of knowledge. Most people never experience that. That's a very, very deep and very profound knowledge. That's borderline of what we're discussing about God's knowledge. You know, it's a different type of knowledge. It's coming from a whole different place. It's coming from a place where there's no separation, there's no disconnection, there's no three external components. It's all, it's all one, and it's it's it's, it's something that comes from within, not external. And uh, you know, that's how we know ourselves. We know ourselves. We're now we're unselfconsciously totally aware of ourselves. Every part of us. Every fiber of our being, every bone in our body, every toenail, right? You know yourself. It's just, it's just a total, all-comprehensive all type of self-awareness. They're not even aware that it's not, it's, it's unselfconscious, but you're constantly aware of yourself, every part of you. But when you get a, 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 something emerges from that level of knowledge, it's, 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 it's a profound revelation and something stirs inside of your soul and... Uh, it, 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 it does wonders. You, know, you feel like you, you really uh, moved and shifted inside, and something changed inside. That's the nature of truth. Nature of truth is it hits home. Like you, you, there's a recognition. Like something stirs inside. Yes, that's it. Something clicks inside. There's an inner response that comes from a deeper level of awareness, a subconscious level of awareness where there's no separation. But that's very rare. That's why the prophet says, he doesn't say it's impossible to understand God's idea of knowledge. He just says it's very, very difficult for us to relate to it. Because most of us 
we're only aware of our conscious levels. Most of us never even get any glimpse of anything deeper than our conscious level. And the conscious level, that's not what knowledge is all about. Knowledge is very external. Knowledge is made up of three components. You can have one without the other. While this deeper, unselfconscious level of knowledge and awareness is, is inseparable. You can't separate between the objective, subjective, the person, the knower, the knowledge. It's all, it's all one flowing experience, which is hard to describe in words unless you've experienced it. So this knowledge of God that we talk about is entirely different than our knowledge. So we, so God wanted to create a human being, an entity, even angels that are separate from you, that are not like a body to the soul. Don't feel like a body to the soul which is totally unselfconscious, totally nullified, totally unified. We don't sense it. We don't feel that way. We feel independent. So we can see God from our point of view, like an outsider looking at God. And that's what God wanted. God wanted to see himself the way an outsider sees us, which is really what communication is all about. That's why communication is the most divine part within a person. That's why communication touches the deepest part within a person. Because that's when you become divine, when you communicate when you get married, when you step outside of yourself, when you see yourself from someone else's eyes. That's why the artist needs an audience. It's when the artist is reflected back from the audience. It's when the teacher is reflected back through his students. When the writer is reflected back from his readers. When, when the businessman is reflected back through his customers. With a lot of money flowing in. Um, that's when you become real. You don't become real unless there's interaction, unless there's... There's a give and a take, and there's a, there's, you're, you're, you're receiving back. And, and that comes from the deepest place because that's, that's the divine ability to stretch, so to speak. When a person can stretch, transcend his limitation, transcend himself, and see yourself from someone else's point of view. That's what creation is all about. That's what God wanted. God wanted, so to speak, to see himself from our point of view. How do we relate to God? We're, we're separate from him. We're living in a world, a challenging world, a world which is finite and limited and disconnected and fragmented and a world filled with illusions and Madison Avenue hype, and etc. How do we relate to God? How do we see God? How do we understand God? How do we come back and connect with God and willingly choose to enter into this relationship? And that's a novelty. That's, that's, cre- that's a creative, that's something creative. That's where all creativity begins the moment you forget about yourself. You step outside of yourself. And you see yourself in someone else's eyes. That's when all your creative juices go flowing. If you have everything bottled up inside of you, there's no real creativity. Real creativity begins when you start communicating. And when you start then, when you start contacting and connecting to someone outside of you and really hitting home, that's when you really start amplifying. Whatever's going on inside of you becomes amplified a thousandfold. That's when you really start flourishing. And husband and wife, they create something new. They become partners with God in creation. So the ultimate creativity is, and the ultimate expression of God's creativity is when you forget about yourself. God, so to speak, forgot about himself and created an entity that's separate from him, that senses themselves as separate, that senses our self-conscious and are able to come and enter into a relationship to God from their own position. And the truth is that we are totally nullified and unified with God. Just like the body is totally nullified and unified to the soul. And the truth is, it's much deeper than the body, as he explained. The connection to us and God, because the soul cannot turn off the body. Like the blink of an eye. The body existed before the soul came. And the body exists even after the soul leaves, departs. It doesn't disappear. But God and the, and the body, 
It's not like a God in the world, we disappear in the twinkle of an eye. We are totally dependent on God. God turns us on, and in one split second, God turns us off, and we never existed. We're absolutely nullified, erased, as if we never existed. So we are totally dependent on God. So our, we, our nullification to God and our unity with God is much deeper than the body is to the soul. So if the body is unselfconscious and is egoless, how much more so than in truth, we should be totally unselfconscious and egoless. We should be totally, all we should sense is godliness. And that's what God sees. What does God see? God sees himself in everything. Everything is just a metaphor. Everything is really God. But God also created the world the way it is. It's not by accident. It's not an illusion, as the Eastern mystics say. It's not a maya. God intentionally created the world, that we should not be unselfconscious. We should not be nullified. We should not be unified and nullified. We should be separate, independent, egotistical. Because he wants us to have freedom of choice. He wants us to willingly and deliberately and consciously, willingly choose to enter into a relationship, into a marriage with God. He wants us to be a subject who willingly subject themselves to the king. He doesn't want to be a dictator who imposes himself upon us. The body is imposed upon. The body has no choice. The soul imposes itself on the body. Hey, you want to live? You're mine. You're separate, you're independent, you're sick and you're dead. It's all over. So God didn't want to be that way. God could have been that way. You're totally dependent on me. The moment you think you're somebody, forget it. It's all over. You disappear. You're, you're vanish. You, you don't exist. You cease to exist. God didn't want it to be that way. God wanted, doesn't want to be a dictator. He wants to be a king. A king has willing subjects who willingly choose to accept sovereignty. Marriage. It's not rape. It's marriage. God doesn't want to pose himself on us. He wants us to willingly enter into this relationship with all our heart, with all, every fiber of our being and every bone in our body. So God created the world specifically, intentionally, a world in which, in which we are separate and we sense our separation. And we have to struggle. Life is a struggle. It's a conflict. There are challenges and there are difficulties we have to overcome. And God finds these difficulties very precious. And he finds these struggles very precious and these battles very precious. And every time we bend ourselves and we overcome a negative desire and we do the right thing, it gives God infinite pleasure. We're accepting his sovereignty. We're accepting his, his, his kingship. That's the, whole purpose of, that's the whole purpose of creation. But the other hand, from God's point of view, there's no concealment. God sees what it's all about. Because then the analogy was like uh, when the teacher, Einstein, teaches his students. He can't communicate to his students on his own level. They'll totally they'll be lost. They'll totally destroy their minds. The, the different world, different universes. Einstein has to conceal his thought, his, his, his way of thinking. He has to totally forget about his way of thinking, enter into the mind of the students. And even that's too intense for the students. Then he has to find metaphors and analogies and similes, try to communicate, simple analogies to try to communicate, convey his idea to them. Until, after much effort, he finally is able to talk to them on their level, in their world. But when he talks to them on their level, it's not like he's dumbing down to their level. Everything, his initial, original thought is concentrated in this metaphor, in the simile. Everything is there. It's a seed. Everything is there. And Einstein sees, within the seed, within the analogy, he sees, he sees the whole picture. The student cannot possibly see it. But Einstein is able to see it. Why? Because the original idea is Einstein's. The metaphor he came up with is Einstein. Everything is Einstein. So there is no concealment. 
It's like the left hand covering up in the right hand. <laughs> you can't hide over yourself. You can't cover up for yourself. You can cover up for someone else, but not for yourself. For yourself, there's no cover. So God, just like God has an infinite ability to create, God also has an infinite ability to hide, to create a metaphor, to create a parable, to hide, to conceal, to limit, to define, so that we should be able to create a finite world, a limited world, a world in which we can sense our sense of separation. But for God, there is no hiding, there is no darkness, there is no concealment. God sees through the whole thing, because the right hand is from God and the left hand comes out. The infinite ability to create comes from God. The infinite ability to hide and to conceal is also of God. So therefore, everything is God. So to God, it's all one and the same. It's inseparable. There is no separation and there is no concealment. God sees within the world. Everything in the world is really a metaphor and He sees the original infinite concept. So God sees Himself and everything He sees Himself. So all there is is God. Nothing changes. The world doesn't affect God. Nothing changes. God is present. Just like God was present in the world before the world was created. God is present today. Nothing changed. God's essence is present. Everywhere. Within the world. Because he sees everything as just a metaphor or a simile for God. And he sees the purpose in everything. And therefore it's all about God and godliness. We don't see it. It doesn't mean, God forbid, I can bow down to this. That's pantheism. That's idolatry. This is not God. The cup of water is not God. But this cup of water is nothing other than the divine ability to create. But the cup of water is really totally nullified. From God's point of view, it's as if it was totally unselfconscious, egoless, totally nullified before God. It's not independent. It senses itself as being independent. You look at the water, you don't see the source. Really, in a genuine world, if you looked at this cup of water, you shouldn't be seeing the water. You should see uh, energy transforming into matter. You should see the, the atoms. You should see the infinite creative ability uh, you should see the astonishing miracle of right before your eyes of something physical coming into existence. This astonishing, unprecedented, inexplicable phenomenon of something from nothing. How can energy transform into matter? It, make, it makes no sense. It's absurd. It's ridiculous. And you should be astonished by that. So you would, of course, yeah, of course you drink the water, but you wouldn't notice the water. That's not what it's about. In the genuine world, you look at everything, you would see the source, the root. You would see godliness. You'll be jumping from joy, from ecstasy. Everything you saw, you see godliness. You'll be like a fish in water. You'll be swimming in the source. You would sense the source. You would. But we have blinders, and we don't see. We see rigid, external, dead, inert matter, a dead piece of stone, a tree. Beautiful, but I don't see the source. I don't see the creator. I don't see the creative energy. And therefore the world appears to be a very dark place, a very egotistical place, a very materialistic place, a very harsh place, a very brutish and nasty place, a world where people are self-absorbed and self-centered and egotistical and could be very um, rude and harmful to each other and a fragmented place, um, a place that's the antithesis of godliness um, because it's a complete cover-up, a con. You don't see the truth. How can we simple people rise above that? Just one little step. Well, you've already taken the first step. You're studying Hasidus, studying the Tanya, and doing Torah. Every time you study Torah, you illuminate the darkness. You light a candle. Every time you do a mitzvah, you're lighting a candle. You're lighting up the darkness. And... So 
sometimes you need more than just a candle. Sometimes, sometimes you need a torch. There's some darknesses which are like heavy, like thick. The atmosphere is thick. A small candle, actually, the the ear will extinguish the candle. It's full of cobwebs, and it's like just a very thick atmosphere. You need a torch to burn out, to clear the air, and to burn out. So some areas in life, some places in life, you need more than a light. You need a torch. Tanya is a torch. It can light up the darkest places. You know, it could clear the air. It could, uh, it could clear up the pollution, the spiritual pollution. Suddenly you can breathe easier, and you can see... You can see. So this is the Torah is, is the light that illuminates and the mitzvot illuminate. And we all have that faith. We all have that neshama. So we have then innately, inherently, we have that oil. The dynamite is there. You just have to light the match. The match, that's the Torah and the mitzvot. When you light a match, then it all ignites. But it's all there. The potential is all there. You don't have to create it. That's the good news. Jews are compared to stars. You have to light up the night. That's our mission to light up the darkness. So you can navigate by the stars. Every Jew has to be like a leader, a navigator, a light up, illuminate the thick darkness that's around us, tense darkness. And um, so Hashem has given us tremendous tools. Um, today He's made life a lot easier. You know, today the, the pilots fly planes and they navigate based on machines and computers and, you know, they, they don't even makes life a lot easier. So Hashem gave, gave us tools to make, to make, you can even navigate the night and the darkness. He gave us tools. Today you can even see in the dark. You have these goggles, these night vision goggles. You can even see in the dark. So Hasidus is like night vision goggles. You can, you can see the dark, see through the illusion, and see the truth that everything in the world is really a metaphor for godliness. Everything is permeated with godliness. Godliness is within and without. God, God is everything. Everything is God. There's no separation. The truth is like a body to the soul, totally nullified with the soul, totally unified with the soul. Not that the soul, body is the soul, but the body is totally nullified with the soul. God, this body is not the soul. And how much more so by God is much more, more powerful because the body is independent from the soul. But we are not independent from God. We are totally, God turns us on and turns us off like a flash. And, we're, and God has to turn us on every moment. So we are even more connected to God. And we are more nullified before God. So we really, genuinely, we are truly, really unselfconscious. There's no ego. There's no separation. That's the truth. But God created us in a way that we shouldn't sense that. We should sense our sense of finite and limit and separation because He wants us to struggle and he wants us to overcome the struggle and he wants us to earn it and he wants us to want it and deliberately and consciously recreate it and connect and, and then it becomes meaningful then it becomes a marriage then it becomes a relationship then it becomes a partnership God wants us to be partners in creation then he becomes a king he wanted us to be subjects who willingly subject themselves to the king that's why it's so precious that's, that's how Hasidus understands when we say that God is one there's no other reality but God nothing changed God was alone before He created the world, and He's alone after He created the world. Nothing changed. Not that the world is an illusion, God forbid. God created the world. He creates the world every moment. But it doesn't affect God. God remains alone. All there is really is God. And you can spend the rest of your lifetime trying to understand it. It's a good, it's a good place to be. <laughs> trying to understand this contradiction, this conflict. If God exists, then how do I exist? What's going on? Is this world an illusion? But that God exists, that's a given. God is. Nothing exists without God. Could you take it on blind faith and think sometimes? I mean, well, you know, we know it, we know it is. He, he does. 
But it's not enough to have faith. He wants us to understand it. And we have enough information to understand it. Today, it's a lot easier than ever before. What the modern physicist tells us about the table, the physical world is not what we see it is. The world appears to be rigid and solid. It's, it's no, it's not, that's not the reality. It's 99.9.9.9% empty. They can't even find that little particle that's there. And the subatomic, subatomic, you have to go deeper and deeper, and they can, it's, it's all empty space. But it's, just, it's, it's pure energy. It's just pure energy, like empty, energy, energy that's twirling so quickly and it creates this world of solidity and rigidity. So matter is energy. This is, this is modern physics. has totally revolutionized our whole understanding of reality. So today it's a lot easier, easier than ever before to really relate to all these concepts, that the world is not what it appears to be. The matter is really energy. And it's a miracle. It's a miracle. And the fact that the, the body survives is a miracle. You know how many... You know, the natural law is the law of entropy. That the body should be reduced to, to death. That's natural. Death is natural. It's the only natural thing in this world is death. Reduction to absolute nothingness. That's the only natural thing. The fact that something exists, that, that, that the organism is able to overcome all the microbes and all the, the illnesses that are lurking out there, is nothing short of a miracle. That there's order out of chaos. Chaos makes sense. There should be order out of chaos. This is, this is a miracle. That existence triumphs, order triumphs, health triumphs. This is nothing short of a miracle. We, we can't take it for granted. And the more we understand this today, you can relate to it. This is an astonishing miracle that goes on every moment. There has to be a, an energy, a force, that's forcing order out of chaos. That's forcing health out of, out of illness. That's forcing existence out of non-existence. It doesn't, not, nothing to be taken for granted. There has to be an energy, a force that's forcing. That's, that's a divine creative energy. So the, but Hashem didn't want us just to take it on faith. We all believe it. We, knew, we know it. But Hashem wants us to understand it. It should engage our mind. Because when the mind is engaged, and your mind is engaged in understanding godliness, and relating to godliness, and truly have a, a deep, penetrating understanding of godliness, then you come alive as a Jew. If your mind is not engaged, if your relationship to Judaism is very superficial, it's just faith. Faith is very vague. It's very nebulous. It's very fuzzy. We all have faith, but we don't live up to our faith. Why not? Because faith is subconscious. It's not a force in our life. It doesn't affect us in our daily lives, in our decisions, in our habits. So yes, I'm a, I'm a good Jew at heart. That's why Jews suffer so much from heart attacks, because they keep so much of their heart. When was the last time a person says, my heart is healthy, that's all that matters. My legs are broken, and my hands are crippled, and my hands are broken. That's all that doesn't matter, as long as my heart is healthy. It's unacceptable. It's not enough. My heart is healthy. I want to have 248 healthy limbs. I want even my toenail to be healthy. You don't even want to scratch on your toenail. On your nail. What? I don't accept anything less than optimal health. 100% health. So the same is with being spiritual. I'm a Jew at heart. It's not enough. What do you mean I'm a Jew at heart? And how about the 248 limbs, the tefillin and the lighting and the candles and the tzedak and all the other mitzvot and the, and the negative mitzvot, the don'ts, the prohibitions. I want to be a healthy, vibrant Jew. A whole Jew. I want to be able to be drafted in the army. You've got to be vibrant and healthy. But faith doesn't get you there. Faith is too vague. It's too nebulous. It's fuzzy. It's like deep down we all want to be healthy. <laughs> but how many of us are healthy? <laughs> really healthy? Right, really healthy. It doesn't translate into action. You know, it's, the, 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 the ice cream is 
the, the, the delicious ice cream cake just uh, speaks to me. And, and that diet just uh, will leave it for tomorrow, you know. So you have the best intentions, but it doesn't translate into real life. Why? Because it's too vague. Deep down, subconsciously, we all want it to be healthy. And we all make a thousand and one resolutions, but it, it peters out in the moment. There's no force to it. Because the mind is not engaged. Without education, without the mind being fully engaged, there's no change. You can't really change. There's no foundation. There's no, it's, it's, you, have to take it out of, you have to take the faith out of the closet. It has to become a force in your life. And the only way to become a force in your life is if you understand the faith. If you think deeply about it. Try to understand this concept that there's no other reality but God. Try to understand the concept that God is one, there's no other reality. That God was alone before He created the world, He's alone after He created the world. Try to understand the reality that the world is completely nullified and unified with God. Just like the body is totally nullified and unified with the soul, and even much more than that. You have to understand and relate to it. And with all the information we have today, with all our secular education and modern uh, physics, I mean, it's much easier. We can understand all these concepts much more than our parents could. Because today we have language. We, we know realities that they had no clue. So today it's much easier in the country. Today we can really understand all these concepts in a much deeper way, in a much more profound way. And that's the point. Hashem wants us to be fully engaged. When the mind is fully engaged and you have that education and that foundation, then you can build on the faith. Then you can build a life. That leads to emotion. That leads to emotion that's based on substance, based on thinking, focusing, contemplation. And, and that leads to conviction and that leads to inner change and transformation, which leads to action, which leads to thought, which leads to speech, which leads to living as a Jew, behaving as a Jew, acting as a Jew, do's and don'ts, etc. So this is the only way. This is the Chabad way. It's not enough to believe. You have to bring the faith out of the closet, into the mind. The mind should get into the faith, define it for yourself, relate to it, connect to it, find language that makes sense to you, that excites you, inspire you. It has to inspire you. It has to move you. It has to ennoble you. If it doesn't touch you, affect you, or change you, then... I must say, Dennis, I think it makes a big difference for we who learn it. It's just hard on a daily basis. It's hard for me to read a newspaper. It's depressing. That kind of stuff. It's hard to overcome it. Well, that's why, just like a person has to eat every day, why do I have to eat every day? But I ate a three-course dinner yesterday. Because what happens is you eat the food and you digest it and it becomes part of your blood. Tomorrow's a new day. I need a new food. Same thing is with this studying Hasidus. Studying Torah, you need your vitamin T every day. Even though I, yesterday I thought deeply about the concept of the unity of God, the reality of God, that was yesterday. Today is a new day. Today I have to think about it again. I have to get excited about it again. I have to relate to it today. So every day is a new struggle, just like you have the newspaper comes out every day. You don't read yesterday's news. So we can learn from that. Every day you have to learn something new. You have to think about it again, pray again, daven all over again. The same davening I did yesterday. I'm eating all over again because every day is a new day. Yesterday's inspiration was good for yesterday, but it's not enough for today. Today I need something new. And the moment you grow comfortable, and you think it's all predictable, you've seen it all, Hashem always comes up, life is full of surprises. So it's a constant, constant, to be continued. Lessons in Tanya, taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. For more Tanya study, please visit our website at www.lessonsintanya.com.